to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today's guest is Stephanie Schlater from Buckley Sandler. Stephanie is based in Washington, D.C., and we discussed her interesting background, career, and experiences directing an emerging law firm pro bono program. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. Let's jump right in. So to start, could you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you went to school? I'm an army brat, so when people ask me where I'm from, I say nowhere or everywhere, everywhere. depending yeah. on yeah. how I feel that day. My dad was in the army, so we've lived overseas, um, all over the U.S., and when it came time to go to undergrad, my parents were going to Japan, and so I did undergrad in Alabama at Jacksonville State, and then came back to D.C., worked for a couple of years, and then went to grad school and got a master's in education and taught high school and coached for six years, and the principal that had hired me was leaving, and I decided that if I was ever going to go to law school that I needed to go, and so I did. Um, I went to Western New England in Springfield, Mass., and then came back to D.C. So this is a lot to unpack before we move on. <laughs> so do you think, or how do you think being in a military family influenced your personality, your sort of life track. I think you hear from a lot of people that it builds resilience mm -hmm. and adaptability and a certain flexibility. I don't, what do you think it instilled in you? Um, I think, I, I think it definitely makes you more resilient. Um, I find it pretty easy to be dropped into new places or new environments and being able to make friends quickly, kind of make my way around. Um, I'm not sure that I believe that when my dad said we were moving our senior year of high school, I have a twin brother, so I keep saying our, um, our senior year of high school, I was pretty angry at the time. But, um, you know, having gone to undergrad in what would be a small community, people who grew up in the same place, didn't travel, didn't go anywhere, they thought that I was very odd that, you know, that I was picking up so quickly. So I definitely think it's, it's a benefit um, for military kids because they do they do assimilate pretty fast. So if you can get over bitterness and incredible That's resentment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, kids are always hating something. That's so, right. Yeah. That's right. If it's not one thing, it's something else. So okay, Jacksonville State, two notes on that. One, you may not know, but I grew up in Alabama. Really? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Wow. So I feel an affinity for okay. that experience oh, that you great. had. Yeah. We could talk about that maybe offline. But also, <laughs> as we were talking before we started recording, this is a big time for Jacksonville State. And I'll say we're recording this on March 16th. March Madness is just yes. getting started, right? <laughs> First games being played today. So listeners, by the time you listen, you will know how this turns out. But this is an epic time for Jacksonville State, right? Yes, yes. They are They are invited to the dance for the first time, uh, having won the Ohio Valley Conference, which many people were shocked that they were anywhere close. So I'm very excited. People at least get to hear their name. And, uh, and of course, I've done a bracket that picks them going all the way and you just never know. So so. Let's see, maybe they're this year's Cinderella. Stay tuned. Right. Very exciting, very exciting. 
And one note about Springfield, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. home of the Basketball Hall of Fame. That's so right. This oddly seems to be a very appropriate March Madness uh, themed episode. It is actually the hometown of our founder, Esther Lardent. She grew up oh, wow. in Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay. When her family uh, resettled in the United States, they had a cousin who was already there mm -hmm. and they made their way. And, and that's where she grew up. Oh, so. that's great. And Dr. Seuss is from Springfield, Mass. Also. A lot of connections. Yeah. So I also went to summer camp not that far from there. So Springfield was like a solid escape right, mm -hmm. to like an actual restaurant or right. a mall <laughs> or more importantly, air conditioning. Yes. <laughs> so, wow, so many connections. Okay, let's circle back to why you became a lawyer. What were your goals? What were your interests? What were your motivating factors? It probably sounds hokey to some people, but um, I think the first book that I actually remember being interested in and, and caring about was To Kill a Mockingbird and Atticus, and it being based in Alabama as well, I think had a, a personal connection. And so I knew that I always wanted to go to law school. I think at times you kind of question, am I smart enough? Is it too hard? You know, that's an awful lot of money. And I think that's probably why I went to grad school first, because I also did have an interest in teaching. My mom's a teacher. And so when I was, I was teaching government, I was teaching constitutional law in the government class. And so when everything kind of came together at the same time, I decided that if I was going to do it, I needed to do it then. Well, we love To Kill a Mockingbird. I think when we first started, we do pro bono summer reading recommendations, mm -hmm. right? And um, I think it was one of the first books that we recommended. Obvious choice, but right. classics are amazing. And I bet when people ask you, um, students, young people, you know, whether to go to law school, mm -hmm. what advice do you have? I'm sure you, sort of like me, now come to tell people, well, just be sure, you know, right. Maybe when I was coming up, it was a nice default for people who didn't want to go to medical school. <laughs> you didn't have a science background. You're like, eh, okay, I'll just stay in school, I'll go to law school. But the economics now are so different yeah. that even, you know, just from a purely financial position, you really should be sure that this is what you yes. want to do. And, you know, if your heart is really to be a counselor, mm -hmm. that's a different path. You know, maybe right. you don't right. need a JD, right? If you want to pursue, you know, sort of an education path, a social worker path, mm -hmm. be really clear about what it is you want to do. Yeah. And that's hard to say that you know your life goals. Right. <laughs> you know, no one does. And we're going right. to have a lot of different jobs and careers. But it's a bigger commitment, you know, than it, it sort of used is. to be. And not just in time. And sweat equity. Yeah. And, you know, well, emotionally, yeah. Yeah, and I think it makes for a different type of law student. Um, I, I remember very early on, I, I'm vocal. If, if I have the wrong answer, that's fine with me. I'm paying to get the right answers. And so, you know, a lot of the people I was in law school with were in their 20s. I was almost 40. And a guy came up to me after class one day. He said, you really don't care if you get the answer right or wrong, do you? I said, no. And I said, that, you know, he said, I would be so embarrassed if, if I was wrong. And I said, well, you're 15 years younger than me, and you'll get over that eventually. But that's because I, I, in fact, to this day, am still in touch with most of my students. And when they would ask about, you know, law school or graduate school, I said, you know, the, my biggest advice to them was that they should work before, after undergrad, doing anything, any type of professional job, to then decide 
is this what I really want to do? I said, because if I had gone straight from undergrad, I don't know that it would have meant the same thing to me. It's good advice. I'm sure they've changed the name. When I was in law school, we had a group and it was older, wiser law students. Right. And the owls, I'm sure. Oh, that's right. I'm sure they have changed their name. But I really appreciated the owls Mm -hmm. who I got to hang with because they had such great perspective. You know, when you're young and all you know is being a student, you just get Mm -hmm. so worked up about things. Right. And not just grades, not just exams. In law school, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pressure. And it's weird because you're used to having midterms and papers and a lot of feedback. And for a lot of classes, all you have is one exam. Right. Like, you know, (laughs) that's it. It's pretty high stakes. But you also get worked up about the job search, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of the whole kind of machine of that. And I think the owls had a really good perspective of, we'll get jobs. Right. There's not just one perfect job out there for you. Yeah. You know, and also people who've been professional students don't realize what a good gig being a student is. Right. Right? I mean... <laughs> You have so little responsibility, really, and it's so self-indulgent. I mean, it is all about you to learn and to grow and to make the most of it. And if you want to work out and stay up late, if you want to sleep in and stay up, you know, you're not kind of a nine to five, you know, sort of you have a lot of freedom and you can fool around or you can be disciplined. You could treat it as a job, you know, you can just take it in a lot of different directions, but it's up to you. And I think they had a really good perspective of, you know, um, the real world (laughs) is nearly as fun or laid back or indulgent. So appreciate all the upsides of this. Yeah. Well, because I came out in 07 and there weren't any jobs. Yeah. And, you know, coming from the education arena, I, I had no idea how difficult it was going to be. I had heard but I thought, well, that's just that's just talk, and I had no contacts in in the legal uh, field, and you know, so I was like, fine, then I'll I'll go back to teaching or I'll temp or you know work contract work, and and again, I you know a lot of the pe- younger people were waiting for that firm job with the big salary, and that didn't materialize, and they they found out very quickly they had to do something else. I think that's one thing now, being like old, <laughs> the perspective of time is you really do see that there isn't one path. And there are a lot of great experiences people have. And I, I think the legal profession in general has changed where, mm-hmm. like, professions in general, everywhere, it's rare now that you'll have one job your whole career, right? right. And then retire, get the gold watch, and just kind of right. move off into the sunset. The mobility, kind of whether we like it or not, whether we're nesters mm-hmm. or not, whether we think there should be more loyalty, you know, both right. ways, it's just kind of the world we live in. Yeah. And in Washington, where we are right now, yeah. both of us and, and speaking, that's been true for a long time with the ethic of government and public service and people serving in mm-hmm. various, you know, sort of government capacities or public interest capacities and then doing private practice and, and kind of moving around. Right. And that's always been sort of respected and value added, mm-hmm. not some net negative. Right. Um, right. And I think people are seeing that, particularly in a global world where people want to move around mm-hmm. or you know, for family reasons, right. as you've mentioned, right. they're, they're sort of moving around. And it's just um, 
an interesting time yeah. with, with a lot of I options so. on the table. So flashing forward a little bit, how did you get to Buckley Sandler? Well, I was I was working as a contract attorney, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. And um, I'm involved in a lot of outside organizations. And one of those organizations, I was on the board and they had periodic happy hours and a lady showed up and I introduced myself and she was new to town. I introduced her to a lot of people and as she was leaving she said, you know, if, if you ever need anything let me know and I said, well, I'm looking for a job and, you know, so we exchanged cards and she followed up a couple of months later and they were, uh, the firm where I am, Buckley Sandler, was hiring temporary staff attorneys and so she said, are you interested? And I thought, well, Sure, why you know, it's it's what I'm doing right now, it's still contracting. And that then turned into a permanent job and then the rest is history. That's <laughs> so. amazing. So for all you people that doubt networking, yeah. Network and just get up your yes. courage, you know, just get it what's the worst that happens is someone's like, excuse me, walks away and doesn't come back. Yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, well and that's what every everyone that I talk to, you know, that's coming out of, of either undergrad, grad school, law school, I I said networking is a skill and it's scary and I said but if you're looking for a job especially in a city like DC you have to tell everyone you're looking don't ask them can they get you a job you show interest in what they do whether you're interested in it or not and they will know someone and eventually it'll work out and it just yeah get on people's radar screens right and that was interesting because it was a live interaction right? right at an event I will say I think this is where technology smooth some of the rough edges because mm -hmm. I think email helps you know people particularly alumni you know through alumni network mm -hmm. schools or connections I get this a lot and I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people yeah and email you can kind of respond when it's convenient and it's not that scary right. and if no one responds okay you can always think it went into their spam filter <laughs> yeah. you know it's not you it's them and, and it's okay but I think People like to be helpful, but you have to be willing to make the ask, you right. know, and you have to put yourself out there right. and say, exactly. mm, I am on the market, so keep me in mind, right. you right. know. And drink a lot of coffee, even if you don't drink coffee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And as you said, have reasonable expectations. I mean, everything isn't transactional. You right. Know? Like, I'll babysit. Will you get me a job? You know, that right. that's a little uh, uncomfortable, but... Yeah. People will think of you, mm -hmm. and uh, that's a great story. So, tell us a little bit about the firm. You know, it's young and mm -hmm. emerging and growing, and then we'll talk about its pro bono program. Sure. The firm was originally a boutique, um, about thirty or thirty-five attorneys. It was Buckley Kohler. I guess it's been eight years now. A group from Skadden left. Who they had all worked in the same arena for a number of years and decided that that they wanted to make a change and so the firm merged and it's now Buckley Sandler. We're in the financial services arena. We also have a white collar practice. A number of people came from Mayor Brown. So it's it's a good combination of people who were at big law and for whatever reason decided that that Buckley Sandler was where they wanted to be and we've grown steadily. You know, a lot of work with, with the banks, with mortgages, with credit. Um, a lot of the emerging technologies are starting to kind of shift our focus a little bit. But I, I think the advantage of being at a smaller firm is you can kind of take what worked or didn't work at the big firms and, and adjust accordingly. And that's kind of what, what's happened with the pro bono program. 
So at a certain point in time, I'm not exactly sure, so you'll, you'll explain sure. this to us, you became the firm's pro bono coordinator. So there's got to be a story there. How did that come about? <laughs> um, the story probably starts with I'm a pushy broad. Yeah. And, right. and there's We've nothing wrong with that. that. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so I was a staff attorney, and they didn't have a coordinator. They had kind of a loose committee. And another staff attorney had gone to Joe Kohler, our pro bono partner, and said, you know, Stephanie's very good at everything, and you should put her in charge. And, of course, he thought she was kidding, and she never stopped saying that. And so I guess it was probably I had been there about a year and a half, and they said, oh, would you like to join the committee, and maybe you can kind of do some of the administrative work. And so I was doing 100% billable and starting to kind of coordinate the program and stepping into some of the um, organizations that worked with, with uh, legal services. And then it became a lot more pro bono work. And I said, I cannot continue to do 100% billable because the expectations are that that's always first. Rightfully so, because that pays the bills. And so after about two years, I worked 50% billable, 50% pro bono. And because the program was growing and more people were doing work and more people wanted to do work, it was again pulling away from the billable time. And so then the firm made a decision to let me do that 100%. And so I've been doing that now for about two years at 100%. That's a great arc. And you hit a great line last week at our conference about you know people who are sort of half billable or mm -hmm. half pro bono or some combination of having a billable practice and some combination and you try and think maybe it's half and half but really it ends up being full and full right because it is sort of two full-time jobs that's right that's right well you know y you think about it from the billable perspective you've got a partner who has a client and they say we have this many attorneys doing this number of hours and that has to happen regardless of what's happening with the pro bono cases. And if something blows up with one of those, you have to also give 100% of your attention there. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a struggle for, for smaller firms, bigger firms not so much. But I was very thankful that, that the firm realized that because we were doing more work and that it was good work and attorneys were getting experience that they otherwise wouldn't get, um, that they made the commitment to it. Yeah, I mean, and it is a big commitment, sort of mm -hmm. bottom line, to That's go right. from, right, right, sort of a revenue producer to, you know, sort of a... <laughs> That's right. Not, but... That's right. But as we'll talk about, you know, to make the program really work, to sort mm -hmm. of embody the values, uh, you need some help there. Right. And so it's it's important, and I think the firm should be applauded. It's it's a really big uh, and serious step. Yeah. Um, and as you mentioned, it, it's sort of you know, firms that aren't the mega firms, um, having infrastructure, mm -hmm. you know, it's just different, the sort of yeah. levels of professional staffing, you know, non-lawyer staffing, but sort of admin or, right. you know, non-revenue generating professional staffing. It's just, it's a different calculus in, mm -hmm. in sort of the needs and the depth and the breadth. So it's amazing. So how has your life changed since you went from, let's say, fake half and half, which was full and full, right. to, to, to sort of 100% pro bono? Um, it's it, a lot more administrative work, um, a lot more meetings, um, and trying to figure out how to 
get people involved, understanding that my motivation is not everyone's motivation, and and that's okay. Realizing that no now isn't no always, and you know, lear- learning how to get people involved that that previously have have not been involved. You know, that's that's a different calculus than just strictly billable work, and uh, and thinking about one client. So we talked about meetings, we talked about administrative tasks. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you wish you could be doing more of if you just had sort of more time? There's always things on our to-do list yeah. that we never seem to get to. <laughs> yeah, I, I think on a personal level, I would like to be able to take more cases. Um, I tried to do that and it, it always seemed that it just, it doesn't work out. Um, when I was teaching, I a couple of my classes every year were team taught classes with special ed and so I have a background with special ed law and the second summer of law school I worked in Alabama in Tuscaloosa with ADAP and worked on their special education team doing advocacy and so that kind of is is a love of mine and so I would take on more special ed cases I would probably take on more um, constitutional law cases first amendment law um, but I think, and it, you know, we've we've grown very quickly with the program, and so I think at some point there's going to be some leveling out where things will kind of run themselves a little bit, and and hopefully I'll be able to do that. That's a common theme. I think listeners will recognize this: the administration and my responsibilities for running the program take up all of my time. Yes. So my own pro bono docket, you know, right. sort of. <laughs> suffers yeah. because I would be back to like multiple full-time jobs. I mean, yeah, I, it's exactly. just, I don't have the capacity for that. And that is a choice that I need to make. And in a way it's, it's a generous choice because mm-hmm. for many people, the selfish choice is like, I want to work on the stuff that I care right. about. And so I don't fill out forms on time or things slip yeah. through the crack or I take a few less meetings, but that's not in the program's best mm-hmm. interest. So right. I think it's a tension that, you know, people feel and it's yeah. not wholly uncommon. And it does, I'm sure, change over time, you know, and, and ebbs and flows. So we talked a little bit about some of your pro bono challenges. Mm-hmm. So what have you found works best to incentivize and encourage your lawyers to do pro bono? Well, I think early on we realized, again, you know, some people will think it's silly, but giving some, you know, some sort of recognition, awards, we, we have done since I've been involved an end of the year celebration and given little tchotchkes to people who did a certain number of hours. And again, because the firm is, is supportive of the work, you know, we have it structured where if you do X number of hours, you get the little award that sits on your desk. And then if you do more than that, you get a dinner with some of the partners. And then if you do what is a lot of pro bono hours, our foundation supports it with a $500 donation in the person's name to the organization of their choice. And so for a lot of people, I think that's important that that other people recognize that they're doing this work. Um, and we've also not ever said no to what someone is interested in. Now, we may have to adjust it a little bit. Um, you know, one of our requirements is that our cases come through a legal service provider. We don't just take stuff out from the general public. And we, you know, we do that for a lot of reasons, mostly because it's usually work that we don't do on a regular basis and have no experience with associate level or partner level. 
And so we look for organizations that have a good training, that have staff attorneys or mentors for the people doing the work so that they, if they have questions, they can, they can go to them and we're not kind of left floundering. And so, you know, when someone says, this is what I'm interested in, or this is, you know, what I care about, part of my job is to find the organization that matches with that and give them the options. So, um, you know, I think the fact that, that we let people name what they want to do and not just tell them what they have to do is, is a good incentive for a lot of people. I think that's a great point. We talk a lot about pro bono being where passion meets purpose, and I think people want to care mm -hmm. <laughs> about what they're working on right. in their um, pro bono matters, and that takes legwork, and that's right. where you are a real value add, but it's true as an incentive. You know, mm -hmm. if you're kind of legislating and saying, we do X and Y, and you're like, well, that's great, but I'm not particularly moved right. by X and Y, you're sort of limiting yourself yeah. and self-limiting. But it also makes great sense to work through known legal services providers mm -hmm. for all of the reasons that you talked about. And more, I think it makes your job not easy, but easier. Right. Um, because when you're dealing just with cold calls and people bringing in my neighbor, my, right. you know, <laughs> well, that becomes really hard to manage. And yeah. we can just be like, nope, this is kind of our protocol and here are the objective reasons why we need that. And right. I'm ready and able to go out and nurture additional relationships, but this is the system that we have. And yeah. I think that's smart. Well, and I, th I think in a city like DC or any other big city, you know, the legal services organizations know where the need is. And I would not presume to to say this is where we need to be working because I don't I don't have that information. And, you know, I, I think it's easy for people to focus on big impact, sexy cases and knowing that the legal services organizations understand that there are what we would call bread and butter cases that have to be done every single day. And, you know, they, they may not be in the news or whatever, but, um, you know, I, th I think that's a benefit to us is, you know, they kind of vet the cases, they know, they know where the need is. That's another wonderful point. I, I put this under worst practice. We talk a lot about best <laughs> practices, but, you know, there have been a number of times where firms have sort of worked backwards. They, they had their idea for a project, mm -hmm. and then they went out and they sort of built it but then there were no, there was no need, right? right. There were no clients. There right. was actually no pipeline of actual work because it was an idea, but not a need. And mm -hmm. you sort of have to start with those providers in the trenches, right? Net, that know the communities, yeah. know populations, know poverty law issues mm -hmm. that you know many of us aren't doing full time. Right. We're right. not necessarily the experts, and work that way as opposed to the other way around. Mm -hmm. That that's sort of a a worse. <laughs> so yeah. you can really create something and then there's no there there and it right. sort of goes away. So yeah, great points. Great points all around. Um, let's talk a little bit about the firm's pro bono docket. Mm -hmm. Could you give us some examples of um, the types of providers you work with, the types mm -hmm. of matters that you do, a little bit of the range, and then we'll talk about matters that have been particularly meaningful for you. Sure. Like I said, we don't say no to anything that anyone's interested in. So we um, we have a number of immigration matters, whether they're visa cases or some of the um, special juvenile immigrants. And, um, and those, I think, really tug at the heartstrings because those are kids who've come across the border unaccompanied. We have 
some significant matters that, that have been going on for a number of years. One in particular that deals with a gentleman, again, who, was pro who has special needs and was in prison and treated pretty horribly. You know, so for that, I kind of said yes before we did any kind of conflicts check. And so that, you know, as far as impact litigation, but, you know, we do a lot of wills through the Legal Council for the Elderly. You know, you don't think about that elderly people need a will. And if you're low income, you don't just go hire a lawyer to write it for you. And I think that's, that's a way for people who have a very limited amount of time, they still want to meet a client, and they're doing something that's, that's necessary. We do, uh, we do some special ed work. I've got a case going on right now. A lot of the work is more advocacy than it is litigation, especially like in the special ed arena, because these are parents who just don't know the lingo or the process, and so you're really helping them walk through the process and letting the school know that someone's watching. We've done some, some criminal appeals in Maryland, kind of runs the gamut. Yeah. I also like that you have a wide variety of subject matters we talked about and time commitments because mm -hmm. I think that's important too. Basically being able to combat any people's resistance. Right. Right. Like, oh, I'm so busy. I, I don't know. So, okay, let's start small. Right. Right. This right. Is, you are not too busy for this. You yes. can You can make a big difference and a not big amount of time. And exactly. We can exactly. make this work. So. Yeah, I can give you a 10-hour will or I can give you a 400-hour impact litigation. So. And everything in between. Yes. So don't say no. <laughs> I, have, I have answers to all of your objections. I also like your perspective, given the education background, that a lot of what we can do is inform and educate people mm -hmm. to advocate for themselves, right? I think sometimes we don't realize as lawyers, sort of power that we have, mm -hmm. right? People don't even all the time know that what they have is a legal problem. They just know they have a problem. Right. Is it a school problem, an education problem, a health problem, a housing problem, a benefits problem? Uh, yes, but a lot of these have legal solutions. Exactly. <laughs> and and, and we're, we're lawyers, we get it, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but people need information. Yeah. And that's a big value add in, yeah. in helping them navigate bureaucratic, complicated, overly difficult, mm -hmm. you know, unfriendly, scary, challenging systems. Yeah. Well, and that's what my second summer when I worked for ADAP, um, the Alabama Disabilities Advocacy Program, they had a consent decree with the state that was dealing with children in the foster care system. And it turned out that in working through that consent decree, a lot of those students also had special ed needs. The foster parents had no experience with that and so that's how we got in and took the matters but we were doing the special ed advocacy and explaining to them you know this is what IEP means and this is when the clock starts running and this is what the school has to do and so you're looking at children you know again who who are not in their actual home they are being taken care of by someone else so they're already at a disadvantage, and to think that they have special ed needs that are not being met, you know, again, it is it is mostly advocacy, just telling them this this is the process and this is what's supposed to happen. Let's explain briefly for people what an IEP is. Um, it's an individual education plan, and so when a student is not making progress for whatever reason, the school should be testing, or a parent can request for testing, and they 
you know, may determine that the kid is dyslexic or they have some sort of learning disability that needs to be addressed. And so the school gets the teachers, the special ed people together, the parents, the students not usually in that meeting, but they know what's going on and they say, okay, we're going to do some one-on-one -on -one work um, from time to time or we're going to read the test instead of have them try to read the test themselves. We're going to read it orally and let them answer orally. And so making it very individualized education for them. And it's a problem in school districts around the country that sure. do not honor right. <laughs> and, and enforce right. this right that people and families are entitled to. So yeah. it's, it's actually a pretty big area of pro bono practice yes. now to try and keep feet to the fire and yeah. make sure that students and families are, are getting what they are. Yeah. Uh, entitled to. So could you share another story or two of a meaningful pro bono matter that you've either worked on or that the firm, you know, mm -hmm. you've sort of enabled or witnessed? Yeah, or, yeah. well, I, I, I think right now the, the impact litigation with the gentleman that was in prison um, in Virginia, you know, there's some questions in my mind whether he should have ever been in jail for anything, but that's the way it happened. And knowing that, you know, he is has limited abilities, is is autistic, and so his reactions to situations are not the same as, as everyone else at times, and that the state and the locality did not take that into consideration, and knowing that he's been in, in a situation in prison that is just, is heartbreaking. And for us to take on a matter that big, especially as a small firm, one is, is a big commitment of time, a commitment of resources. And, you know, I'm sure someone else eventually would have helped him. I don't know that for sure. And knowing that his, his mother is very thankful, he's thankful, and that at some point maybe the prisons will change their approach because I'm sure he's not the only one. So for, for me, that's that's an important. But we also have, you know, children that are coming across the border unaccompanied and, you know, re, reuniting them with their family, going through the process of, of going through family court and then getting them asylum based on, on their status. I have a soft spot for those. <laughs> nice. So it's interesting as you're telling these stories, the first word that popped into my head was heartbreaking. Yeah. But now I'm encouraged and inspired. So I think it's a, it's a good testament to that. I want to switch gears and take a little detour to community service land. And to back up for a minute, I have been saving this. So you're going to think I'm a hoarder. No, that's fine. I, I, I am a hoarder. But so. I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I actually don't like clutter, but I really wanted to talk to you about this. So thank you for sending it. What, what we're looking at, and this is riveting on a podcast, I'm sure, it is a, a season's greetings card, and we will put out pictures of it on, on Facebook, and maybe we'll tweet some photos. So follow us. We're at Pro Bono Inst. And it's a greeting card that the firm put out, holiday greetings, season's greetings, and it references their community partnership which we can talk a little bit about. And the artwork for the card was created by a fifth grader, Leah D. And the back of the card has pictures from their other five finalists, people from, ranging from kindergarten to fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And I love it. It's such a great use 
uh, and tie in mm -hmm. to the firm's community service initiatives. Okay, switching gears a little bit from pro bono, but just to talk about community service and a great way to highlight mm -hmm. um, the values of the firm in an awesome uh, card that you're probably yeah. going to do anyway, right? <laughs> That's right. So That's tell right. us a little bit about the community partnership and how this card came about. The partnership is through the um, Washington Lawyers Committee that has an education program where they partner law firms with DC public schools. And so we have partnered with Cleveland Elementary for a number of years um, doing tutoring and a lot of different things with them. And so I just happened to notice we send out these very generic, boring holiday cards. and No slight intent. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So we worked with the art teacher. They did their own contest, have parameters that are always not, not always followed. Then we give the partners at one of their lunches um, in November the options, and they, they decide which ones they like. And we've actually moved from doing just the hard copy card to also doing our email card the same way. And one of our marketing guys is super tech uh, savvy and animates the cards. So like that one, the snow was coming down in, in the snow globe and the fire started and you could see the flames. And so that now, all of this will make more sense when you look at the photo, but you can have an image in your mind of a snow yeah. globe with the snowman and a roaring right. fire, which also makes sense given that it snowed here on the East Coast yeah. this week. Crazy. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah. it is. It is a good combination, and I and I think, yeah, I'm sure other firms do the same thing, but I think for us, the overlap of the pro bono program the community service, our foundation, they all are kind of woven, and even our green team are all woven together. And the idea that we support what people are interested in, whether it's in a community uh, service uh, activity or pro bono activity, um, I think they all work together very well. I like to think that a rising tide lifts all boats and that yeah. that works well to integrate those values and functions. And I've got to think you know, a lot of this is about creating and benefiting the firm by creating more engagement among mm -hmm. your people, feeling good about the firm, you know, loyalty, all of that has mm -hmm. business benefits. And sure. I've got to think versus getting and sending the generic <laughs> but lovely card and something that is as touching and meaningful and just kind of makes you smile and yes. feel good is <laughs> just... Night and day, so that's that's really great. So thank you for talking sure. to me about that. Switching gears a little bit, back to pro bono. Okay. What's on the horizon? What do you have in the works? Short-term, long-term goals, new initiatives? Well, in the last year, year and a half, we have moved from having kind of a limit on hours that counted for billable. I, again, being a little bit pushy, have um, the partnership has agreed to do one for one. Um, which I think is huge to, to really not just say we're committed, to actually show that we're committed. Um, and we have, um, it's not a requirement, but we our goal is that every attorney will do 30 hours or more for this year. Uh, last year it was 20, and we went from 40-some-odd percent to 73 percent doing 20 hours or more, which was huge, at least in my mind. And then this year we did something new, which was actually pick an area of the law that we, that we wanted to focus on, and that was immigration. And 
boy, we're focused on it. <laughs> so yep. um, that was picked um, before everything happened, and and now it's it's coming coming around full circle. Your crystal ball was effective. Right. So there you go. Well, I, I love to see the positive momentum and movement. Mm-hmm. And as a relatively new signatory to our law firm pro bono mm-hmm. challenge, we love that. I think many times firms are just resistant, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're kind of not where we want to be. So we're going to wait till we get all our ducks in a row. Don't wait. I right. mean, you will never get all your ducks in a row, yeah. right? Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Just Let's go. You know, right. we got to start somewhere and there's help out there for you. And yeah. it's a it's a really great story of progress mm-hmm. due to amazing commitment and hard work. Oh, <laughs> thank you. It happen overnight. <laughs> so it's really uh, a testament. So, okay, if you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about the firm's pro bono program? I think in my my perfect world, it would be mandatory. I think there's a little bit of movement from the bar associations to make pro bono mandatory. And, and I, I get the arguments that that could be seen as a negative, that people don't want to be forced into doing something. But, you know, as we've talked about, there's so many options. I really can't imagine that there's not something that someone cares about. So I, th- I think I would make it mandatory. But we obviously can't help everyone. But I, I think continuing to grow and continue to increase the number of hours and seeing where that where that leads us. Excellent. Thank you. So let's end with this. Okay. Who's your pro bono role model? <laughs> I thought about this, and I, I, I think selfishly there's several different answers. Yeah, um, good. Going back to To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus, obviously, you know, taking a case during a time that probably was, was not the best for him. I think that showed the commitment that is needed, especially in the pro bono arena. But going back to our discussion of, of networking, when I was still doing contracting and, and meeting people, I was put in touch with, you know, you, you go to a coffee and the rule is, you know, make sure that they give you the names of three other people. And so the first or second person that I had coffee with was Jess Rosenbaum, and she put me in touch with Jim Sandman and Phil Horton, who didn't know me. They both were still at AMP and had busy billable practices and running AMP's pro bono program, which I can't even imagine doing. So that's and, Arnold and Porter, which yeah, is now Arnold right. and Porter K. Scholler, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, for people who don't think it's the supermarket, right. not the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure people don't know the AMP was a no. supermarket, <laughs> no. um, like the Piggly Wiggly. Um, and so, you know, both of them spent a lot more time than I would have ever anticipated that they would. Phil took me to lunch, paid for lunch, talked to me for almost two hours, and I was just so impressed that a partner at this huge law firm would spend the time to kind of help me navigate an area that, that I had no experience in. And, and knowing that they both were so committed to pro bono, I think, I think spoke volumes for them. Oh, thank you for sharing. <laughs> I, that is such a great note to end on because generosity of spirit is something we could all use a lot of these days. So knowing it's available is very validating. Yeah, and Phil and, came and spoke at our, at our year, our, our end of year program this year. And everyone was like, 
oh my gosh, he's wonderful. I said, I told you so. Yeah, yeah, and he's quite a character. Yes. So that is, he's a great speaker, and that is awesome. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for talking with yeah, me today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much to Stephanie for her time and sharing her expertise with us. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And please take a moment to leave an iTunes review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. To learn more about us, you can find us on the web at probonoinst.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.